Hi folks, I'm Duncan Guild, child and adolescent psychiatrist. And I'm Victoria Lee, licensed clinical mental health counselor. And welcome to Is There a Med for That? The podcast about teen mental health, behavioral problems, and what to do about them. Victoria and I have been working together for years with kids. Sometimes we use therapy, sometimes medication. Sometimes we just give guidance to parents. And we realize that sometimes kids just need to be left alone. We don't have all the answers, but we've got some of them. We'll do our best to share what we've learned over the years working with struggling kids and their families. We hope you enjoy the show and that we can be helpful to those who have taken on the hardest, most important job in the world, being a parent. Hello, Angela. Hey, Duncan. What's up? Not a whole lot. What's up with you? (laughs) Not much. I'm excited to be on rather than being the the fact checker today. Yes, we have uh, brought our fact checker in to um, play the part. I think we're going to have questions from kids today. Yeah. Yeah. A little Q&A style, ask the doc. Um, We have 10 questions lined up. So Outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. Angela is both our fact checker and a wonderful group counselor here and a yoga instructor, and in medical school right now, submitting essays and, ap- and applications. That's true. Hopefully in medical school one day. That's the plan, yet. and then she's going to cover for me when I'm on vacation. So <laughs> anyways, uh, we I have no idea what these questions are, so we're going to try to wing it, and we'll just delete the episode if it's no good. <laughs> Sounds like a plan to me, Dunk. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what do we had? How did you get these questions, Angela? All right, well, so I asked... The kids out back during the day, if you could ask Duncan anything that you wanted to ask him, no repercussions, anonymously, hmm. what would you ask him? So I'm getting nervous already. Yeah, right. I feel like you might, you, you should be. You okay. have reason to be. Um, so kind of a soft startup. Please. <laughs> <clears throat> You're welcome in advance. <laughs> how old were you when you wanted to do child and adolescent psychiatry? And how did you know that you wanted to commit to it? It's great. I can just talk about myself some more. Yeah. Wonderful. So family history of the illness of psychiatry. Um, I've got about, oh boy, seven family members or something, including father and sister. So I always kind of liked it. And then I got to med school. And then during med school, I was sort of individuating and saying, I want to do my own thing. And I decided I was not going to do psychiatry because the rest of the family did it. And um, I was going to become an ER doc, which looked really fun with the various things you do. And then towards the end of the application process, I realized that I was choosing to do something different just to be different. I was being slightly defiant. And uh, that wouldn't be a good reason for a long-term career. So uh, psychiatry was always easy and fun for me. So, um, yeah. And then there's more to this answer. Um, thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I was doing adult psychiatry and then I was going to be chief resident after my third year. And I realized sort of suddenly, I forget if I had a particular, a, a young patient or something that I always looked forward to the young ones. Um, and I had less interest in sort of, it it was the kids who I was the most interested in working with. So, uh, anyways, I decided in my, um, uh, preceptor was not happy because I was supposed to become chief resident next year and, uh, he felt left him in the lurch, but, uh, I think we worked it all out and that's how I got here. Cool. That's awesome. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
kind of extension off of that one, what do you feel like people misunderstand about you the most? About maybe connected to that defiance piece. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> I'll keep it safe. Uh, <laughs> we'll start that way. Um, anyways, about me as a psychiatrist. Um, uh, yeah, people have a preconception as to what that's going to be before they come in as, uh, Typically, and child psychiatrists are much less like this, but sort of formal and dressing in, you know, suit and tie. And sometimes I think the stereotype is sort of stiff and aloof. And um, uh, I would say before kids come in, that's definitely the the sense they have. And um, I think it sort of disarms them when they see that we're kind of, you've done the intakes and they were pretty mm -hmm. casual. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. That's true. How about when it comes to like you personally? Oh, I knew you were going to do this. <laughs> um, I guess I sort of try to have two speeds, two sides. Um, one is, as you can see with the kids um, in general, going back and calling the kids in and stuff, I, I tend to be pretty informal and joke around a lot. And kids call me by, by my first name. And... Um, it, it feels definitely very natural. There are times I have to sort of step back and be, um, have that sort of more professional role and which, which I use a lot more when I was doing adult psychiatry and in the ER and that kind of thing about being, you know, an authority figure. And I actually like that part as well. And neither is really, um, it has to be sort of your personality. It has to be part of what you are and you can't really fake either one you have to be both but I kind of enjoy going between those two modes so I don't know if that exactly answered a question but I thought it was yeah 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 it's kind of like an art to it kind can of, be deceptive to yeah. people who, who see me only in one side and then mm -hmm. then um, switch mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense another question that the kiddos were curious about and I kind of debate on asking this oh, but <laughs> Have you ever been treated in a program similar to direction? And if so, how is your experience? The closest thing I had um, was uh, this really powerful experience I had when I was a chief resident, actually in the child psychiatry field, where they send you to a leadership. They don't really tell you what it is. It's this sort of leadership conference is all you hear. And I was thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be terrible. This is going to suck. And I'm just going to be around other psychiatry residents. And it's going to be really boring. And we got there, and it was like this retreat. So it was, you know, three days or something. And um, we all end up, basically end up in a room with, everybody was subdivided. Um, and there were probably 10 other people. And we just sat there and talked a little bit and then realized whoever we thought was coming was not coming. And then it sort of became clear over time that we were, it was a group therapy session. Um, they'd already set us up with kind of a tense situation. Um, they, they had us all prior in an auditorium and they sort of introduced the thing without saying what it was, but this is, you know, hundred people or something. And they went around and said, basically, you know, we want to hear uh, something personal about you. And so, you know, the first person got up and said, well, you know, I'm Dave and I kind of like basketball in my free time. And 
Um, I've wanted to do this for a long time. And they were totally dismissed by the speaker who said, no, it's not personal enough. And so it got kind of uncomfortable the way they were doing that. And he kept walking around. At some point, somebody got serious enough. They talked about their mother dying and that kind of thing and became teary. It was set up as this very sort of uncomfortable experience. Then they moved us to these groups, which we don't know are groups. And they sort of got us all off guard and, and anxious. And then they turned into group therapy sessions, which were very powerful. Like I was very humbled afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the more powerful experiences I've ever done. So I got sucked into group therapy without knowing it. But then you learn a lot about yourself. And I had some things called out. Um, uh, sort of, I would say, my um, tendency to be a little bit... Um, I don't say opposition, but, you know, sort of... Um, defiant. A little defiant with a field and a little cavalier about it. And, um, uh, you know, I'm different from everybody else uh, sort of sense, which was sort of cut down to size there. Um, anyways, very powerful experience. Hmm. I really gained an appreciation for how groups can work. That's interesting. Do you think I'll have to do that in med school? I hope so. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Okay, next we have, can you give an example of the most removed or most challenging parent that you've ever had to interact with and how did you deal with it? Oh boy. The parents are definitely harder to work with than the kids. I think that's probably true whether or not you go into this field liking working with kids better or not, but um, uh, I've had some not like my sort of informal style and thinking I was being kind of cavalier and mm. dismissive and that kind of thing. And that gets pretty uncomfortable. Um, I would say probably the, the most common one is parents coming in saying, you know, what's your program doing? Uh, my son met so-and-so and now has gotten involved in smoking marijuana and you know, or, you know, one of the staff said this to my kid and what kind of place is this type thing? And uh, actually my partner, Joe, uh, or former partner, he, he passed away, but he was very good at dealing with that. I learned a lot from him in terms of remaining professional, but not getting really defensive and saying, you know, well, we, we do our best here. If the philosophy really doesn't match what you're looking for, we you know, we, we think you know your child better than us, and we, we encourage you to seek treatment elsewhere. We're happy to give you a referral. And that almost always has parents saying, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You know, I want to stay, but um, I just like these questions answered, which we do our best to answer. But, um, yeah, that's, I'd say, the most common thing. And that happens every few months, I'd say. Yeah, there's plenty of docs out there. Yes. There actually aren't. So is there are other docs. <laughs> there out are there. other ones, yes, <laughs> with different styles. But those are probably the most uncomfortable. Next we have, did you ever have a moment where an early on in your doctor life where you're so freaked out that you just questioned everything? <laughs> everything this, this like one might be life? More, more for me than, than anyone else. Uh, did you answer the, ask this question or did a kid? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you said in doctor life, so it could include... Not just psychiatry? Like early on in your doctor life. All right. Or so, maybe in your in your personal life, too, so that, <laughs> where you just freaked out and questioned everything. One situation comes to mind, which was being on call one night during residency and working in the adult inpatient unit and being exhausted. 
and having had a very difficult, um, troubled um, female patient on the unit who was unhappy with something I said or did or something. Anyways, it was very sort of high maintenance and all the staff had sort of trouble working with this person. But I was down in the ER two in the morning seeing a new admission um, and I got a page and I answered it and pages, I don't know if you know what pagers are, but <laughs> they beeped. There were little things you used to wear before cell phones. And I sort of madly rushed to grab it. I think it was another emergency. And it was actually this patient who had called from the payphone and paged me upstairs because she was having a bad night, was mad at me or something. Hmm. And I was totally frustrated and exhausted. So I, I kind of snapped, you know, this is completely inappropriate type thing. And then I think on the unit, she went and told the s- staff how I dismissed her and she was suicidal now. And I wrecked everything and I had to rush up to the unit and try to um, both apologize for being kind of unprofessional with her, but also deal with a troubled patient. And um, (laughs) it was emotionally difficult because it was exhausting. I was exhausted. And I have this sort of tendency to want to make everything right anyways. So I felt like, you know, I felt particularly guilty about the whole thing. And some nights like that, you know, exhausting the next day, you think, do I really want to come to work tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Overall, yeah. I wouldn't say that was the worst, but that just came to mind. Yeah. That stuff is hard for us. Highly agreeable. Folks, it really right? is. <laughs> yeah. D- disappointing people. Yeah. yeah. Angela and I share that. We've, we took personality quizzes here at work and um, I scored 93% on agreeableness, which is, I think, is seeking consensus and trying to please others. And Angela scored 99th or something crazy like Something that. like that. Yeah. What else? What else? This is fun. Yeah. I'm enjoying this. Yeah. Um, I guess kind of going off of that one too, do you personally deal with anxiety and what's been your worst panic attack if you do? I've not had panic attacks, although actually I do remember when I was a kid, I don't know if this counts, but um, there's particularly a bug called an earwig. Oh no. You heard what these are? (laughs) Yes. These little tiny things. And we'd have periods, we lived in the country where these things would surface all over the place and I was probably 14 or something or 12 and um, I don't know how we're getting into this Angela but these things were serving they're coming out of you know the sink drains and stuff one night and I was counting them and one was on my toothbrush and they were in my bed so I completely freaked out for about 15 minutes um, that was young I haven't had panic attacks but definitely anxiety um, I would say it centers around that sort of agreeableness and um, particularly with early in my career parents and feeling like I was disappointing them or had to confront them in some kind of way or be assertive. I have struggled with that uh, over the years. I got much better about it, but would be anxious before meeting with them. Um, Yeah, clinical decisions never made me as anxious as the relationship stuff, which is sort of interesting, but... um, those are the times I've gotten the most anxious at work, I would say. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you. The earwig things. The not earwig not thing so was interesting. Terrible. I still I think somebody had told me too about my father who had been playing harmonica and sucked in an earwig or oh something. Oh my like that. goodness. Yeah, it was pretty bad. That's horrible. I think I was traumatized by that. Then maybe we can cut this part out. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe this is also more of a question that I might be asking, but do you feel like as someone who's highly agreeable, do you feel like it's ever 
hard to make make a diagnosis because of that and or tell someone what their diagnosis is? Making the diagnosis not hard at all. Um, telling someone is sometimes. Um, particularly if it's a kid, um, I always want to share as much as possible with kids. Sometimes parents have different ideas. So sometimes I'll feel I want to clear it with a parent first if it's a 13-year-old or something. And like any doc, giving quote-unquote bad news is hard, um, uh, particularly for more serious diagnoses like schizophrenia. Um, that one's hard to do, and particularly because you, know, you often don't know for sure, but you want to say, I'm suspecting this. Um, and a lot of people, particularly in psychiatry, have ideas or particular sort of um, preconceptions as to what something means. So even using the word bipolar disorder or, um, yeah, bipolar disorder is the, the big one. Um, people can jump to conclusions, so you have to be careful about I, how you couch that or phrase it. So what I often will say is bipolar spectrum disorder, like kind of on this continuum, rather than the, the full thing sometimes freaks people out, which, you know, I get. But um, so as far as telling folks, what, what's much harder is telling folks they need to go to the hospital and they don't have a choice. Um, I don't do that so much occasionally. Yeah, I still do it sometimes. Or telling parents their kid needs to go. And practice helps that. But I don't enjoy it still. Yeah. That's yeah. Part of being a dog. It is. It's part of the deal. But something like, uh, it's just something you learn, but you think about, Docs, oncologists who have to say, hey, you have cancer, or my God forbid, actually say somebody's passed away during surgery or in the ER. So I, mine's, I'm relatively lucky. This one actually is, you might think it's for me, but it's from one of our kiddos that we have here now. We have a couple aspiring physicians out back. Not yes, just, we do. Not just me. Um, but if you had one piece of advice for a young doctor going into the field, what would it be? Probably, well, some of it's definitely the same advice I gave you, which is not to get discouraged with the med school process, which is seems like it's almost designed to weed out half of the people who want to go because of these pre-med courses you have to take that really have nothing to do with being a doctor, but the physics, the organic chemistry, what else do you have to take? Biology, biochemistry, did I miss anything? Uh, like calculus one. Calculus one. And there's this mindset that you have to do really well in these courses to um, be a good physician, um, which is completely bogus. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any fields that use, definitely research probably uh, uses some of this stuff. And, you know, an anesthesiologist use some physics and stuff, but you learn those little bits on the job. Um, so it's not to get discouraged by that, particularly because I think medicine attracts people who tend to be... You can say it. Yeah, but more pessimistic <laughs> um, and downbeat and anxious, right? Anxious, mm -hmm. kind of OCD people. So you will hear always from the people who are in higher classes or upper classes, you know, you just wait till next year. It's much worse. This is, right, you have it easy right now. And then people quit and give up. So as far as becoming a doctor, that's the one. As far as... Um, being a doctor, it's, it's being humble 
and being willing to accept the fact that this is an art and not a science. And that goes for all the fields, um, probably more so in this field than others. But um, this idea that there's an algorithm that's going to fix people is nice for insurance companies and a nice thought, but it's just not true. So it's being humble. It's being willing to think out of the box. It's being willing to say that you made a mistake. Um, listen to other people. So that's the advice I would give. Mm-hmm. It's hard to, like I've been finding even through application processes, like the, the um, tests that you have to do, even the outside of the box thinking is somewhat compartmentalized still into like taking an exam. Yes. And like, how can you truly think outside the box, even in an exam setting? So it makes it harder and weeds out those people. That's very true. Yeah. Getting to med school is very much an in the box process. Mm -hmm. At least the academics are. For folks who aren't wonderfully gifted at test taking and that kind of academics, the out of the box part is figuring out how you're going to become a doctor without just doing the in the box part. And there are ways to do that going to, you know, um, international med schools and there are different things you have to think about, but it's really not encouraged. Um, I don't know if it's encouraged that much. You get some good teachers in med school, but a lot of folks don't think out of the box Mm -hmm. and it's a mistake. Yeah. Maybe we could do an episode sometime soon about like advice to give pre-med students. That'd be fun. That would be really fun. Yeah. Okay, switching up a little bit here. Have you ever related to your patients in any way? And how has that influenced your diagnosis if you made one? And if so, how did you navigate it? Hmm. Yes. <laughs> I think we probably all do that. Um, hmm. You know, it's interesting. Um, now... It may have been more of a problem earlier on. Now it's relating kids to my own kids and trying not to have that influence treatment as to things which maybe drive me nuts about them or things that I feel um, I really want to rush in and help them with. So it's interesting as I've become a parent, it probably has more to do with finding similarities and then trying not to transfer that relationship Um which is called transference. It's a psychiatric term. You probably heard that one. Um, So being careful of that. Earlier on, definitely, you know, folks who are more on the anxious or agreeable side, um, I thought more about, definitely, it's less as I've gotten older, but more the kid thing now. Hmm. Okay. How did I navigate that? Yeah. (laughs) The whole thing is, um, it's interesting because transference actually is typically a patient going to a, a doc. So I spoke incorrectly. It's tra- counter-transference. But the main thing is identifying it. If you're not aware of it, it can be really screw you up, um, screw up the whole relationship and the treatment. But being aware of it is, you know, it's like admitting you're an alcoholic. It's, it was admissions the first part of the solution or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So um, it's recognizing it. And then particularly early in your career, talking with your supervisors about it and sort of processing it. Um, and then I either stop noticing it and ignore it or uh, get better at handling it. <laughs> yeah. Or use it as a tool to, you know, make your diagnosis That's more effective true. too. Good point. Hmm. You'll right. be a great doctor. <laughs> Thank you, Duncan. <laughs> we have one last final question. It's kind of a big one. 
Do you ever regret becoming a doctor? It's an easy one. No, I don't. <laughs> I, no, I really don't. I love this career. Um, I like coming to work. I like helping people. I like the challenge. Uh, the lifestyle's nice. I never feel like I'm going to lose my job. Um, I've also been able to think out of the box and sort of carve out a career which is different. So definitely if I were still stuck in a more... I, I can definitely see docs. I understand getting tired of it too. If you have, <clears throat> you know, the the bureaucracy can be a nightmare now. Mm-hmm. The um, administration sometimes it, it places the politics, the fact that um, docs feel squeezed out increasingly by nurses and nurse practitioners. Um, yeah, actually, yeah, I should say there, there are lots of frustrations, but uh, I think you can carve out your own place. You have to be creative where you are somewhat shielded from that stuff, which is what I've done. Um, but actually thinking back, the reason I did it was because I was getting so frustrated at my last job. So that's interesting. Yeah. Good question. It sounds like Joe really influenced you in that way too, yeah. to kind of like recognize that and then take action towards doing yes, it. Yes, let's do something creative and different, not yeah. do it the way everybody else does it. Yeah. And have our own medical record system and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it begins um, to speak to your practice itself, too. Yeah. So good questions. Thank I'd you. I'd like to do this again. That was we a lot of fun. We definitely should. Yeah. Well, great. Angela, I think you did a great job in your first podcast. You, um, you will be invited back. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, ben, you're doing a great job still as a sound guy. Yes, Ben. Hope great folks job. Have, <laughs> hope folks have enjoyed this, and um, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Is There a Med for That? For more information about our podcast and our clinical work, visit our website at medforthat.com. If you've got questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to cover, feel free to email us at contact at medforthat.com. We'd love to answer some of your questions on air. Have a great day.